Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought I'd, I'd blog talk. Blog talk is such a whimsical beast. Anyway, hang on a second. From the People's Republic of Minnesota, very cold <laughs> Minnesota, very 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 cold. You are uh, tuned in to Closet Objectivist with Dr. Megan Rimmons. My name is Corey Baum. Um. Yeah. Just. I just uh, love hearing that voice. Um, we also have um, fellow closet host, Stuart Hayashi. You want to say hello? Aloha. It's Stuart. <laughs> uh, I, I love that intro. It's just uh, it's very nostalgic for me. Um, so, wow. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little flustered just. It just feels so good to hear hear your voice, Stuart, and to hear Corey's um, even even recorded. Um, so thank you, thank you for joining me. It I know I said this before the show, but it bears repeating. It means so much to me. Thank you. How are you doing? How what's uh what's new? Um. Well, I went to another book borrowing binge, and I I I'm, I'm, might draw a second political cartoon. Oh yeah, I um uh, yeah, the first one you're referring to is the one with Trump and the whole witch hunt thing. Is that right? That's right. Very cool. Wow, good on you. That's. I have to say, I um, that takes, at least from where I'm sitting, that takes a lot of courage, and um, I really applaud you. I, I don't know, just, just the idea of doing something like that makes me so nervous. Do you want to give us a teaser? You mean of the second one, or you mm-hmm. you mean talk about the first one? Well, well, the first one, the first one, is of um. Is of this guy. He's tied to one stake, and um, there's this politician who's very squinty, has sort of a comb over, and he, for some reason, <laughs> his lips pucker and protrude, and he says, um, "Robert Mueller's investigation of me is nothing more than a witch hunt. You know, it's just persecution." Then he says to the guy, the guy tied to the stake, "Oh yeah," and the politician is carrying a torch. And the politician says. <laughs> okay, now you must burn, heathen. No more of your sorcery. <laughs> yeah, there's a there seems to be a lack of self awareness with that um, politician character. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. The guy who tied to one stake, I labeled it undocumented immigrants in general. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, 
wow. So what, uh, that sounds like a tough act to follow. What are you going to do for your second political cartoon? Well, it, it's based on an actual, it's based on actual um, segment on a cable news program I saw. Um, some of our listeners might recognize which show it is, even though I won't, I won't name it. It's safer not to name it, but, <laughs> but, um, so the TV host says, says, um, he's talking about Vance Whale, and he says, what, what's happening in Vance Whale is a disaster. That's what happens when you think government control and big tax taxes can be smarter than the free market. Then on the other side, he says, coming up next after the commercial break, explain why President Trump's punitive taxes on imports are good for the economy. Hmm. I'll be perfectly honest. I have never had cable. <laughs> I have oh. no idea oh. to what you're referring. Um, oh. You don't have well, to tell good. me. <laughs> the the um the irony of that juxtaposition speaks for itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was watching a cable news program, and. What happened? Yeah, really, there was, there was a segment just like that where first they're talking about Venezuela. They say, see, that's what happens when you think the government is smarter than supply and demand. And right after they got back from the commercial, they're talking about how wonderful President Trump proposed taxes were, is taxes on imports. Hmm. This was before this was before he um this was before the election. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's it's. I love the fact that humor so often involves, like, it illustrates a logical fallacy. I mean, that one's pretty glaring. Um, I was just, I, I was just recalling. Um, speaking of logical fallacies, I, I was recalling um, back when I was in graduate school. My one of my friends in graduate school, he, I, I think I was marathon training at the time, and he was, um, he very much disagreed with my life choice there. Um, and so one day he comes in and he says, oh, my gosh, did you guys hear about the jogger who was, you know, they were jogging in Griffith Park and they found a severed head and we're like, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. And then he turns directly to me and says, see, this is why you never run. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, <Wow>. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I didn't run the marathon, so. I eventually oh. came to see the, the clarity of well, his well, logical well, fallacy. Well, he should show you Friday the 13th and say, see, this is why you don't go camping. That's what happens when you go camping. Yeah. <laughs> the same thing is, like, no one's ever died from vacuuming. But why risk it? Now, I mean, that's actually a very good segue into our next segment, housekeeping. Hold the thought for just one second because I cannot... I cannot resist. Housekeeping. No, thank you. Sleeping. Housekeeping. You come back in an hour. Housekeeping, you want towels? Want towels? Need sleepy. Housekeeping, you want men for pillow? Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. I'm not actually going to do a lot of housekeeping because because I don't have to and don't want to, and so I won't. Well, what was I interrupting, Stuart? Well, I, I think I was gone. 
Oh. But, <laughs> but. So, yeah, this, this, okay, so this leads into, you, you, you've seen my notes. So, um, I've been like, this illustrates everything I'm about to say. Perfect concretization. I've been listening to a lot of old episodes in preparation for these, um, memorial episodes and, um, hearing Corey's voice, um, makes his, his passing, I can't even say the word, um, so unreal. It's like he's right on the other end of the phone. And listening to these episodes brings up a question I have asked myself every week. Why does Corey put up with me? Um, <laughs> and since, um, well, I do, I, I mean, since, since um, the only supervision I have is Stuart's, and he's always given me way more rain than I deserve because <laughs> he's just too nice to like rain me in. Um, I've, um, well, I just should say, you know, the, the weeks where I've been on my own, I've been completely unsupervised and sort of like straight from the normal format. Um, and so my, now that I've got Stuart to kind of maybe rein me in, Stuart, you should probably do that. <laughs> my pledge is well, to everyone <laughs> And those were the words he regretted the most. <laughs> um, anyway, so my, my pledge to everyone listening is that um, for this episode, we're going to go quintessential ICO. And by that, I mean that I pledge that at some point, I will loudly pour myself a glass or five of wine and put away dishes in a thinly veiled attempt to ameliorate my on-air anxiety. I pledge to say something without giving any indication that I'm winding down and thereby cause a prolonged, awkward silence lovingly referred to in broadcast as a show hole. And I pledge to abuse the sound clip. That is my promise to all of you. So buckle up. If you could buckle just up, make up any, any news headline that you wished was true, what would it be? Right. So it would be like, um, Congress is all read every one of Ayn Rand's books and has agreed to her principles. (laughs) Okay. I couldn't resist playing that clip because I mean, this was completely off the cuff. I don't think we had any, if this is just some random question that occurred to me off the top of my head on air. And I asked Corey and you can tell he was just immediate, right? He had the most brilliant fake news headline just on the tip of his tongue is magical. Um, so, um, yeah, he always had the wittiest made-up headlines, and um, I think it's a perfect concretization of how value-oriented Corey is. Um, and so when I when I heard that, you know, for for the second time, I or maybe the third, um, I I started making a list of real quote-unquote news headlines um, that is improvement in the world that we've observed from from our little corner in the closet um, over the last few years and um, things that are on the horizon that I think I think Corey would have liked. So now I'm putting you on the spot, Stuart. Do you have a fake news headline for me? Well, yeah, I guess it's paradoxical. Uh, my fake news headline is people finally realize the truth matters and it's all they have. 
<laughs> that that is um, a somewhat paradoxical fake news headline, yes, <laughs> um, but I love it. So uh, if you don't mind me asking, what um, what prompted this particular fake news headline? Well, I mean, it's just so much of. Well, I don't want to be too pessimistic because you know Corey talks about the importance of you know looking at what's good in the world. You know, because you're, you know, you know, because as objectivists, it's very easy for us to get caught in what makes us angry, and as if everything is going down. You know, and Corey wanted us to remember what's good in life and what, you know, what's improving. So, but you know, it has, I am worried about how, you know, things are so quickly partisan, and people know what they're going to believe. Like, like with the whole, with the whole. Brett Kavanaugh thing, as, mm. as long if you know what the first people's positions on abortion is, you immediately know. I mean, as soon as you know what their position on abortion is, you immediately know whether or not they believe accusations against Brett Kavanaugh. You know, you immediately know you know what their position is going to be on all these other things. And I wish people could, you know, know that. that the Seems truth, a little cliche, doesn't it? Yeah, the truth matters. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, to be honest, I've tried pretty hard to avoid the whole subject just because, like, you know, I I, I don't know, right? Like, I, yeah. I have no way of sussing out the the veracity or, or falsehood of, of the allegations. Um, it, honestly, the whole subject of... Um, of sexual violence is just really upsetting and uncomfortable. And I just, you know, it's, it's not, let that be somebody else's job. It's kind of, yeah. it's kind of my view. It, I just, I just yeah. don't, nobody cares what I think about with regard to like the, you know, Supreme court judges, nor should they, because I, I'm pretty ignorant about the whole thing. So that's fine. You know what I mean? Like division of labor, yeah. I'm totally okay with that. Um, yeah, if I had more knowledge, I think an opinion would certainly be required, but but don't. There it is. Um, I gotta. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like dismiss what you're saying because I think it is really valid. It's it's alarming. I, I agree with you. It's alarming that you know people are so. It, I mean, would you say that this is an example of tribalism type? behaviors you think that's a fair characterization yeah yeah so yeah so i i would say it's the caveman brain at work i guess that that's sloganeering on my part that's something i want to make a thing you know it's almost good as making fetch a thing but um so you know like pop psychology has this um you talk about the reptilian brain they say well it when people just go by their impulses that's the reptilian brain at work. Hmm. You know, and the idea is, you know, this through neural marketing that they say, well, that's because our reptilian ancestors always went by impulse. And I think that's very misleading because there's actually uh, these science experiments testing the ability of reptiles to learn. And it's much more impressive than people have thought, you know, that, you know, and, and only lizards usually um, will attack insects from the top. But the scientists, 
this protective covering on top of the insect so the noe lizards couldn't, couldn't um, get the insect that way. So they learned to flip over the cover. And that's more, much more intelligent than you know, people ever realized lizards could be. So, so yeah, so I, I, so I, in a way, I have to, so in a way, I have to think the term reptilian brain is outdated. But I think, but I think, I do, th- I do think the concept is similar to something I have in mind. I call it the, the caveman brain, where, you know, back in the caveman days, you know, there was a lot of this was before the mention of agriculture. So people re- were at war for resources. It was clan against clan. And it was a sort of socio-political environment where people were conditioned to prioritize, you know, the clan above the individual. You know, and you just have to go with what the clan wants. You know, and, and most of the people in the clan were genetically related, so it's like, you know, you know, so it's like even if you if you further the the clan's welfare, supposedly, eventually your genes will be transmitted. More likely across future generations. So I, I think, hmm. I think maybe these emotional biases might have been inherited genetically, and in cases where they aren't, they're still um, taught from one generation to the next. So I think a lot of collectivism is what I call caveman ethics—not slave morality, but caveman morality. And when people default to group membership, uh, I think that they're defaulting to the caveman brain. And I don't think this is a I don't think this is a concession to attacks on free will because we do have volition, you know, we do have free will, we do have conception, the conceptual faculty. So even if there's some kind of emotional bias toward favoring the clan over the individual, I think we can overcome it. And I think we can stop and think, think this over and say, you know, is you know, is this just you know, is this just a gut reaction on my part? Because that, that's not good enough. It's not good enough just to go with my gut reaction. I have to think things through. And I think, you know, we do have that choice to stop and think things over. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no comment to make about the caveman. First of all, um, neurobiology is, is, not my, um, is not my wheelhouse. So I want everyone to take this for what it's worth. Um, so I couldn't point to a structure in the brain and say, oh, this is the caveman brain, or this is this is what people refer to when they when they talk about caveman brain, as I understand it. And again, you know, given that it's it's being sort of um, appropriated by popular culture, who knows, right? Who knows what anyone actually means when they talk about the reptilian brain? But I have read about um, the um, um, I want to. I think it's a hypothalamus that they're talking about when, so it's interesting because I read this in the context of childhood development. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of a book called the whole brain child. That was really interesting. Just talking about sort of the perplexing things you might observe your child doing and what's going on physically in their brain. And one of them is, you know, if you see a child just losing it, and, you know, and for whatever reason, it always happens to be in public, right? Like, they're just screaming and having a tantrum. And the poor, um, and their poor big person is, is trying to, usually they're trying to reason with this kid, right? Like, we are in public. 
I'm not giving you this candy right now. If you don't call Dom, there will be consequences, et cetera. And the, the child is just screaming through the whole thing. And so apparently what's happening is that it's, um, I want to say it's the hypothalamus that's like, is, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's preventing really any, um, any like higher, you know what I mean? It's, it's preventing communication to and right to and from the um um cerebrum right the cerebral cortex is kind of where you've got the logical thinking and um uh language and higher order reasoning and all of that and yeah so essentially the the rest of your brain is just not accessible when you're in such a panicked state you know what i mean so any you know these poor parents are really just trying to be good parents and and they just you know, all communication is severed, you know what I mean? Um, so the book has a very different strategy for how to, you know, kind of reach the rest of the, you know, reconnect and integrate the whole child um, where they're just completely cut off. Um, so I, I don't know if that relates to, the, to your thoughts about the, the caveman brain. I think that's what they call the reptilian brain, but who, like, I said, who knows? It's amazing. Like every, I often ask people when you use this term, what are you talking about? Like, what, what do you mean? And they so often get like a completely flustered look about them and and can't give any answer. So yeah. Well, well, now, now I have to check that out because that, that is what I was talking about. You know, as far as I know, I, I'm the one who coined caveman brain. So Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to be the one who's flustered and can't define <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't a I, mean, I mean I just it's an interest it's an intriguing idea and I don't know how to connect it to um the relatively little I do know about um neurobiology and neuroscience. So again, take that for what it's worth, which is not a whole lot. But, I mean, do you think those tips will work on adults? Because, you know, because, you know, I mean, because you see these very emotional reactions from adults when, you know, when you, 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 if when I criticize something President Trump did, they say, how dare you make America great again? You know, you know maybe that's their hypothalamus, you know, overpowering I mean, everything. That does happen in adults, particularly if there's, um, trauma involved, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder um, or anxiety, right? Usually there's, there's a huge physiological reaction, um, you know, increased breathing, heart rate, blood pressure, um, just the, the sympathetic nervous system going, going berserk um, in it. You know what I mean? So there's like a huge physiological response. Um, so, you know, one of the techniques is to to help people reconnect with their upstairs brain, you know, as I've heard it called is, is um, deep breathing. You know what I mean? It sounds, it sounds, I don't know. Some people think it sounds kind of hokey, but any, you know what I mean? Or doing like a, um, a super pose, right? Like a power pose, right? Where you standing tall with your fist. Yes, I know. It sounds, it sounds kind of silly, but it really no. does cause this entire physiological cascade where you all, instead of feeling helpless and victimized and frightened and anxious, 
just changing your posture so that you're in a more powerful pose can can put you in a completely different, more integrated mindset in adults. It's amazing. So, yes, yes, the whole thing with your, I think it's your your hypothalamus, but again, I, you know, I could be mistaken. Um, It happens in adults, too. Um, And it usually, yeah, if someone's having, like, a huge emotional reaction, you know what I mean, that doesn't really seem proportionate with the topic at hand, there may be something else going on. And, And they may be cut off from, you know, total access to their brain, which, you know, that sucks. I mean, that's, that's no fun. Um, so, yeah. well, <laughs> you know, speaking, so your, your new headline was um, about truth. And I know before the show, we were talking about um, a story that you were, you were saying got um, appropriated and, uh, you thought Corey would like to hear about its origins. Do you, do you want to talk about that now? Oh, yeah. So it's from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And um, and lots of historians and archaeologists think that the, um, the story of Genesis about Adam and Eve is a co-opting, a subversion of the story to change the meaning. And it's an um, ancient Mesopotamian story. It's in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's about Enkidu and Shamhat. And um, so what happens was, first, gods create Gilgamesh. He becomes king of Uruk, of this ancient Mesopotamian town. You know, and he's, um, you know, and their farming town. And he's pretty much a jerk. You know, he's a big lech. You know, he's a big jerk. Big oh, lech. God. Yeah, there are lots of Me Too moments with him. So, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I should have included it. If I had known, I would have included that in the hashtag. Apparently, that gives you a lot of traffic. Yeah. So, um, so the people of Europe want someone to rise up and challenge him. So, they, um, the gods create a man out of the earth, man out of the mud, and he's called Kidu. And he roams the wilderness naked and innocent and free, he's a perfect noble savage. And he um Yeah, he's a perfect noble savage. And he's in this paradise state. He doesn't have to worry about he doesn't have to worry about anything really. He just walk runs around naked, lifts off the land, things like that. And he and he talks to animals and he releases all these animals from these traps. So these hunters get mad and they go to build them and say have to do something about this wild Sorry, man. Did he ask the lizards about their brain and what they think about? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, you know, inquiring minds want to know. A reptile does play a part in Epic of Gilgamesh. And, um, you know, because in, among pagans, serpents are symbols of wisdom and health because they, they when they shed their skin, it's like they come out renewed. Hmm. You know, so it's like, wow, you know, and so what happens is, so Gilgamesh says, okay, we have, you know, we're going to send the temple prostitute Shamhat to do something about it. You know, and temple prostitute sounds really weird to a lot of people, but 
the ancient Mesopotamians regard sex as holy. It's not this demeaning thing to be ashamed of, but it's it's like communing with God because that's how good it is. So they have this very uh-huh. they have this very exalted view of sex. So the temple prostitute Shamhat. Uh, I mean, you know, it seems they, like an inadvertent threesome, but I mean, like the idea that it's you know very spiritual. Yeah. I guess like you know I can I can get behind yeah. that. Sounds yeah, like a really bad pun. I'm really sorry about yeah. that. The prostitute prostitute doesn't have a negative connotation with them, but like it. So she goes to the wilderness and she 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 seduces Enkidu, the wild man. And they're together for seven days. And on the seventh day, he's just in love with her. Follow her, follow her back to the city. So she puts clothes on him and she says, "Now you are like a god. Now you are as a god because you are wise." And, wow. But there's this, this, yeah. But this comes at a cost. This comes at a cost. He, um, he, when he tries to talk to the animals, they flee from him. To scare of him, he's he's no longer this innocent wild savage, and so he 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 has remorse about that. But now he's civilized, and for the most part, he likes that. He goes to the city, he sees what big bully Gilgamesh is, and he challenges him to a battle, and so they play each other, and like Gilgamesh just falls in love with him. He says, wow, this guy gave me such a pounding. I've never faced such a challenge before. I'm in love with this guy. So we have a bromance later on. Wow, that's, I mean, what an unexpected twist in that story. I mean, would not have yeah. expected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. whoever wrote that was the original M. Night Shyamalan. You know? Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. That's very cool. Although, I'm, there's, there's something a little questionable about the second act where Gilgamesh realized, you know what I mean? Like, hmm, I just had seven days of glorious sex with this, you know, woman who clearly knows what she's doing. So much so that she made me godlike. I mean, but oh, yeah. the animals. Hmm. You know yeah. I mean? Like, I can't, I can't honestly buy that for one second he was like, Huh, should I go, you know, if I can go back in time, would I do the same thing? I mean, no. He was not asking himself that. Well, yeah, but like, he, he has all these, um now, he has all these worries that an adult man has, and, um, and what happens is that, um, so Gilgamesh eventually searches for this plant he says he thinks it'll give him immortality, and he, he finds it. But he finds it. But when he goes to bathe, a serpent comes and steals it and eats it. And then the serpent sheds its skin. And like Gilgamesh is like, oh, you know, Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh felt there. So, and this came out thousands of years before Genesis. So, um. They say it's interesting. So, so these are the things they have in common. So you have this man, this, this man, who's um, he starts out wild and not civilized, but he's sort of happy in his blissful, you know, primitive state. And then this woman comes along, 
and makes them wise, makes them more of an adult, you know, makes them face responsibility. And he, he's causing this big position. He, that was true. Yeah, he's no longer in that primitive state before. And yeah. Maybe that just says more about me than... I, I don't know. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. And, yeah, and, you know, and there's this eroticist element involved. And then the serpent comes in to the story and, um, you know, and sort of deprives some deprives people of immortality. So those parts are similar, but what's interesting is the um, subversion because, you know, even though Ikidu regrets not being a wild man talking animals anymore, the overall implication is overall implication is that he's better off being civilized. He's better off moving from the wilderness to the city. So in Genesis, it's completely reversed, where you know, you, when you move out of the wilderness, you lose everything. Everything, you know, you paradise is lost because you've lost the wilderness. And you move on to agriculture, which is just horrible toil. And the city is always portrayed negatively. You know, like like the Babel, Babel is, is Babylon, the city, the Mesopotamian city. And they're so decadent and corrupt. And when the tower falls, the proud tower falls, that's them getting up their confidence. So the implication is that city civilization bad, original primitive state good. That's a complete subversion of the way the ancient Mesopotamians saw it. Hmm. Sorry, I was I'm kind of chuckling because um, have you ever seen Supernatural? Oh well, it's so embarrassing for me. I haven't because you know. I talked to Mark Pellegrino, Lucifer, on Twitter, but <laughs> I'm sorry. I haven't yeah, seen no, him. honestly, part of it. Yeah, so I actually, I I kind of washed out before Mark came onto the scene. I really need to go back and catch up. You know what I mean? Um, I really enjoyed Misha Collins, and the you know, um, I thought that was really fun dynamic. Um, it, you know, I was just kind of thinking about it was like one of the season finales where Misha Collins, so you know, he's playing an angel who's who's lived, you know, for millions of years, you know, probably since the beginning of time, um, and he's kind of talking about his experiences, and at one point he brings up the Tower of Babel, and he's like, it was like 37 feet high. Which I guess at the time was impressive, and when it collapsed, they said it was it was God being angry. But come on, you can only pile dry dung so high. <laughs> I mean, the whole narrative has got like such this, you know, it's building up to the season finale. It's got such a somber tone to it. Except, you know, at one point he interrupts himself to be like, "But come on." You can only pile dry dung so high. I really dug it. I thought that was so Go funny ahead. because it contradicts Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson just loves the jail Christian tradition. He um he just says this is true. He says it's universally true. It's not he says all these themes are just universally true. It's just universally true that if people feel embarrassed in, about sex. They feel embarrassed naked. And I think 
you that's funny. That's the whole notion that that's universally true just shows how pervasive the Judeo-Christian culture has become because it wasn't universally true to the ancient Mesopotamians. They didn't have that impression. You know, they they you know, Shamhat is physically vulnerable, but she's not emotionally vulnerable. She's not. She doesn't feel insecure about sex or nudity or any of those things. You know, and I thought it was so funny how he was so offended by Frozen, the movie Frozen. He said, "Oh, this is politically correct left-wing feminists taking an ancient story and and um, subverting it for their own ideological purpose." And for some weird reason, he didn't mention that it was a Hans Christian Andersen story. He was talking as if it was an older story, but no, I think it, it was. I think Hans Christian Andersen is the identifiable author. And he's no, if you want to get to the real good stuff that's so universally true, true, you know, since the beginning of man, you have to go back to Genesis. And I think that's so funny because Genesis itself did what Jordan Pearson is so horrible and so in, intolerable. That was people taking an older story and subverting it, you know, and, and co-opting it for their own ideological purposes to change the message. Yeah, I'm. That's um, that's uh, surprising to hear that that was what offended him so much. I mean, that was fairly typical of of certainly the most famous plays of all time. I mean, Cyrano de Bergerac was based on a man who really did have a large nose and was a complete Renaissance man, a soldier, a philosopher. Um, Othello was was based on a Moor who. Um, you know, became a high-ranking military person in, I don't know if it was Italy, but I mean, that was, that was actually very common um, through, as far as I could tell, through, through most of human history. This is not new. Um, it's just surprising to hear that so offensive to him. Um, bizarre. Um Oh, I was doing so well with the with the segues, but <laughs> um, we were we were talking about you know fake news headlines and and um, I have I have not had one. I did not bother to to make one, which I mean I guess our our loyal listeners know is fairly typical for me. Um, but I, there was there's a purpose this time. Um, as I said, this episode's kind of going to be real, quote unquote headlines um, that I think Corey would have liked. I, I titled the episode um, An Eager Look at the Future. And so I just want to highlight some really cool things that have that have sprung up in the last couple of years and um, are, on, are on the horizon. Um, and I've got three sort of general categories. And the first um, is education. The next thing I wanted to move on to was schools, though. Um, sorry, I, I can't. I, I apologize if it seems macabre that I keep bringing up these clips of Corey. It's just, like I said, it just feels really good to hear his voice, and um, so I, I couldn't resist. Um, as as our loyal listeners know education was hugely important to Corey because 
he's he has two beautiful daughters and he I know I talked about this last week every every word out of his mouth the subtext was I love my girls and I love my wife um every one of them you could tell um so he was he was very interested because of them in education so um the first the first thing I wanted to point out was that um the Objectivist Academic Center, which is part of the Ayn Rand Institute, they have extended the deadline to join as an auditor and take, I think, so Stuart, remind me, it's embarrassing that I don't know this. The, um, I know the OAC had like a three-year program and then it was a one-year program and now I think it's back to being a three-year program. Is that right? Do you know? I, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I, I got pretty deep into the three-year program, um, geez, back in, like, my first year of graduate school. It is longer than I, ago than I care to admit. So um, I actually um, have joined as an auditor. I'm really excited because I'm going to do it with my bestie, Pooja. So, um, and she, as you know, she is an alumna of the show as well, and it's probably very obvious that she is super knowledgeable, way more knowledgeable than I am. So it's going to be quite a task to keep up with her in these, in these classes. And I'm really looking forward to it. So you can still join um, lovely listeners. If you'd like join us, it would be such a blast um, to have you. Um, and the tuition for the entire year is 1875, not nothing, but um, I think for what you're getting and certainly compared to college classes, stupid cheap. Um, so, yeah, I've included um, in the, the notes um, on the blog talk, you know, on the, the site for this episode, um, a link. I mean, it's like a survey monkey link. It's stupid easy to, to register and pay for the class and, and you're and you're golden. Um, so, yeah, if you're if you've got the spare time and a little bit of spare cash, please join us. It'd be such a blast. Um so that's, I mean, that's like a brand new thing. Um, Stuart, I think you were there at Ocon when, when Tal Bonnie, am I pronouncing his name correctly? I don't know. Mm. I was yeah, there um, when. Well, I mean, so you were, were you there when um, he, the new um, CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute was talking about all the new changes and one of the big ones was just making um, the OAC course series um, available to anybody. So anybody could, I mean, in the past there had been auditors, um, but the class sizes were quite limited even then. And now anyone can audit the classes. I heard him say that on the last day when he was mm-hmm. sitting next to Dr. Brooke. Oh yeah, was that was that right after the graduation ceremony? Yes, it was. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I it was one of the um, Gracie, as you know, Gracie was at Ocon, so there was there wasn't a lot of classes I got to or talks I got to see live. Um, I think I saw it after the fact, but yeah, that was a really cool thing, and I think that was, you know, if, if Corey was. Um, Corey was still with us. He'd probably 
he'd probably be taking those classes right alongside us and keeping us honest and making sure that we study. <laughs> so um, that's, I just think that's really, really cool. And I, for anyone who hadn't heard the good news, I wanted to share it here. Um, the other thing, and this also came up at Ocon, um, was that Bandam Academy, which I know I've talked about ad infinitum here on the show, um, amazing school, first through eighth grade. It's in Alyssa Viejo, California. They are coming out with a documentary, and the whole purpose of the documentary was to show education as it can be and as it should be. Um, that's me paraphrasing, but um, I, so, you know, everyone knows I, um, I follow Lisa on Twitter and Facebook, and um, I read her blog, Pygmalion for the Soul. I follow the Van Damme Academy YouTube channel. Um, so I, I just, I'm voracious when it comes to content that they provide to show how education really should be. And honestly, I have not seen anything like it. I, I cannot say enough good things about the school. And the whole purpose of the documentary was to, to kind of act as inspiration and, and catalyst for other schools to model themselves after VDA. Um, so, like I said, I cannot say enough good things about this. I'm so excited. And I've included a link to the documentary. Um, it, it's not out yet. Um, so what I'm linking to is the Indiegogo site. I believe it's Indiegogo, um, where you can kind of get updates and see it when it comes out. We got to see a little clip at Ocon, which was amazing. Um, so, yeah, that's another I'm, I wish that there was a Van Damme Academy in every city in America, but Lisa Van Damme, as in, you know, that, that was just never her purpose. To, you know, she was never going to be an empire builder. She loves teaching classes. She's, she's a principal. She's a founder. But um, what she, we're, you know, her jam is really teaching classes. And having taken classes from her, I get it. And I don't think she should be anywhere else. Um, so really the only way to get Van Damme Academies in every single city in the world is, um, you know, hopefully the first step is this documentary. So I'm really excited about it. Um, okay. And so Stuart, just interrupt me at any time. You know, I kind of <laughs> start blathering and don't know when to shut up. So um, this is probably, I mean, I've I've got this list of, cool stuff in education that's happening. Is there anything you wanted to interject? Um, well, no, I, I don't have anything about that topic. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I guess I'm sorry. Well, well, I, I guess I should add that, you know, Van Damme Academy, you know, it's, you learn a lot, you know, the emphasis, you, children learn a lot about everything in life, not just Kung Fu, although maybe one day, maybe one day if it expands enough, they'll learn <laughs> Kung Fu there too, in keeping with the name. <laughs> and they can all do the splits in all three directions. Yeah. <laughs> Even on a moving car, it's amazing. No, not, not that, not that Van Damme. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so um, it, so Stuart, have you heard of higher ground education? This would be the first time. Okay. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Um, so so higher ground education was started by um a few people who originally worked at Laporte schools, which is another series. I mean, so Laporte schools actually um. Peter Laporte and his wife, I think her, it's either Christine or Christina, and I always mix up the two, which is super embarrassing if you're listening. I'm really, really sorry. Um, it's late, and I'm usually, like, asleep by this point. Um, so, yeah, they're they're a lot like Dynamic Academy. Um, really, really knowledgeable, objectivist educators, and, and they actually are empire builders. They've, they've got schools all along the coast of California, um, and even, I believe, in um, New York and near Washington, D.C., I want to say. So um, clearly these people who, who got their start in, in, you know, the port schools really know what they're doing, and they wanted to kind of expand on that effort to bring a Montessori-like education to every child. They started higher ground. And, and I'm paraphrasing. I should just read there about us. Um, higher ground education was founded by a small team of impassioned educators and leaders, skilled operators who had spent their early careers creating and scaling one of the most high-quality, high-fidelity Montessori school networks in the world. For many years, the team devoted itself to developing, testing, refining, and putting into practice the resources, systems, infrastructure, and pedagogical leadership required to achieve Montessori at scale. And at its pinnacle, had created a network of over 20 schools across both coasts of the United States. And yet the pace of the growth was not fast enough. The impact was not widespread enough. We helped create from small beginnings a group of schools of which we were truly proud. We had learned firsthand the incredible impact of proper education on the soul of the child and the family. Oh, so beautiful. Um, but these accomplishments, far from slaking our missionary thirst, served only to increase it. It became necessary to climb out of the box we had built around ourselves and reimagine the problem from scratch. It was at this moment, oh my goodness, stupid scroll. Um, pardon me there. <laughs> it was at this moment that higher ground education was born, a moment both of renewed seeking and of breakthrough discovery. We sought perspective. We sought an elevated place to stand from which to gain a macro level view. And we found our overarching goal, not merely to create our own community of schools, but to be a catalyst for fundamental change to an entire Sphere of education and entire generations of children by making the Montessori pedagogy properly imagined the dominant educational approach worldwide. Wow. Sorry, I keep editorializing. Um, I'll try to rein it in. Um, this is your job, Stuart. You're supposed to rein me in. Um, Why? <laughs> because if you don't, I'll run amok and you know it's true. Um, the okay, continuing. We're, we're making. <laughs> why would, why would the world money ever? 
it's very sweet of you, Stuart, and nobody believes that. Okay, continuing the quote. Um, we view our task as wildly overambitious, but at the same time, practically necessary and urgent. We do not think it is an exaggeration to say that the either human civilization achieves an educational revolution or it may fall within a few generations into another dark age. To help fuel such a revolution, we first recognize that we cannot do it alone. We must empower a movement through supporting all the talented, passionate fellow travelers out there animated by the same love of children and hunger to offer them something better. Through a combination of deep thought and focused action, we will raise ourselves and our educators and as a result, the children of the world to ever higher ground. So essentially, as I understand it, what Higher Ground does is they help um, daycares and um, early education schools become on a story. And um, check out their their site on, particularly on Facebook, they, they have these before and after photos. And the before photos are really visually loud. I mean, blaring. Um, just a bunch of classic um, loudly colored toys. It's just visual overstimulation to say nothing of what it probably sounds like in such a, such a daycare. And then they show the after photo where it's this beautiful, warm, inviting, calming atmosphere that's so perfectly conducive to learning. And keep in mind, you know, I, I don't think I appreciate this fully just, just like how early children start to teach themselves concentration. It's happening now. It's been happening for years with Gracie and she's two um, where she is teaching herself concentration. So giving her loud, obnoxious plastic toys is, is counterproductive to her mission, her her job, her self-appointed job right now is to teach herself how to spend time with an activity and really understand it and explore it um, and learn to be patient with herself. Um, and it, and most, most um, early education environments are completely counterproductive to what, to, you know, her and, young children's development of needs. And that's where higher ground is stepping in and, you know, catalyzing that revolution. And I'm so thrilled about that. I, I don't know if Corey knew about this, but it was just, I've been following them for a couple of years now and I'm just so grateful. Um, so, all right. Have you heard of mystery science? Stuart? Only a little. Okay. All right. Um, I mean, did you want to, did you want to comment at all? Well, yeah, I, I think that parents often uh, react to, you know, with shock to the wrong things. Like they, they react, you know, they gasp <gasps> when children talk backward. They say, where did you learn that word? But no, I think one of the <laughs> horrifying things, I think parents should react, should gasp in horror. If the kid says, learning, oh man, I have to learn something. <clears throat> That's when they should go, <gasps> and and it's not the if a kid if a kid says that I don't I doubt it's the kid's fault. That means 
I'm sorry, you, you can be a very loving parent, but if the kid says that, somewhere you fail as a parent because the default is for children to want to learn. They're eager to learn. That's why they ask you a thousand questions. If the kid, if your child says, learning, oh, man, you or someone else taught your child that. But don't worry, that sin can be rectified. It's not too late to change that. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Although, I mean, I guess I've observed, and and tell me if you've observed the same thing. That, I mean, adults are getting the same message, right? I mean, I wouldn't say with learning so much as with, I mean, most people are very comfortable talking about things that they dislike, right? And I, I think that makes a certain. I think I probably talked about this before on the show, I think that makes a certain amount of sense, right? If you say, man, I just really dislike math, right? And someone yeah. says, oh, I like math, right? Like, that's, you haven't really lost anything if they disagree with you. Um, contrast that with if you say something like, I am just so completely in love with multivariable calculus. I just, I think it's amazing. Um, someone says, ugh. Math, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, there's a sense in which they're they're devaluing this thing that you cherish. I mean, if if they disagree with you about something you dislike, you know, it's like you're you're working t- from negative to zero. But if they mm-hmm. they disagree with you about something you really cherish, it's like you're going from a huge positive to a negative, and that's, I mean, mathematically, that's worse. Um, yeah. it depends on the linearity of the scale, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like I, yeah. so there's a sense in which I get why someone would be come off as jaded, right? Because talking about values makes you vulnerable in a way that talking about disvalues doesn't. Um, yeah. and maybe they talk to their children that way too. I, I don't know. I, I mean, does this resonate at all? Yeah. It makes sense. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, good to hear that. Not just like, you know, blowing smoke up your ass. Um, so mystery science, um, I'll just read the, the blurb here because it's another thing I'm just completely jazzed about. Um, and mystery science, our mission is to help children stay curious. Young children love to ask questions. So what you were talking about, Stuart. And um, yes, I have experienced that firsthand. It's just, so endearing. Um, they're naturally curious about the world. Why does it get cold in the winter? Why do we need to cook our food? Why are flowers so colorful? The sad fact is by the time most children reach middle or high school, they've lost this curiosity. Science class rarely focuses on helping children investigate their questions. Instead, it becomes a vocabulary class where children memorize science words and definitions. Children learn that their questions are not important, so they stop asking them. Think back to your experience in science class. All the memorization, the parts of the cell, nucleus, cytoplasm, mitochondria. I mean, I guess that would that would be a eukaryotic cell. Just sorry, just my interjection there. Um, or the layers of the earth, crust, mantle, molten core. But this memorization is empty knowledge. How do we know there's a molten core in the middle of the earth? Did your teacher ever mention that people have only drilled seven miles into the earth, which doesn't even get through the crust? 
this is the place the conversation should start. Children are rarely, if ever, given the opportunity to explore the questions that led to the discovery of the facts they're memorizing. Every scientific conclusion began as a mystery. Someone wondered something about the world, and they set out to investigate it. When we present scientific facts without also helping children to ponder the initial questions, it's like jumping to the last part of last page of a mystery novel. You skip the setup and the investigation, leaving you with the conclusion that's detached and meaningless. Children are deprived of the excitement of wonder, the suspense of investigation, the thrill of discovery. The worst and worst children learn to believe things because they're told this is the very opposite of what it means to think scientifically in mystery science. We believe that if you take a child's question seriously and help them to investigate, their natural curiosity will develop into scientific perspective on the world. This ability to think scientifically is fundamental to any career or subject a child chooses to pursue as an adult. It's the ability to look at a question or problem, systematically investigate, and collect evidence, and come to an independent conclusion. This is why our mission is to help children stay curious. We believe teachers and parents deserve better resources to help children investigate the mysteries of this endlessly fascinating world. I love it. And, I mean, everyone knows on the show that I, I will often highlight scientists that I admire because they have such clever ways of figuring out the answers to really seemingly intractable scientific questions. They're just, um, I, I guess I just really admire lateral thinking um, and probably why I love science so much. There's so many instances of, hmm, here's a seemingly insoluble problem, um, or question, and then some genius comes along with a really unique approach and solves it and comes up with something completely unexpected and wonderful. It's like it's like a present every time. It's a lovely surprise. Um, and I love that there's this company out there, again, um, uh, founded by objectivist educators um, to to really, I guess, promulgate that through through the culture. Um, oh, sorry, I'm completely bothering. Uh, you are you cool moving on to the next topic, Stuart? What? Are you cool moving on to the? I was going to go to well, art and well, 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 I wanted to comment on this. Now, now I, sure. find this, I have to admit, you just solved the mystery for me. I wondered why it was called Mystery Science. You know, when I heard Nick, uh, what it's, it's about watching a movie and making fun of it, you know, that, that, that's what to me made me think. Oh, so, my gosh. So, like, do not knock Mystery Science Theater 3000, first of all. So, so the creators are from science, Minnesota. Because uh, science is, you know, solving a mystery where, you know, it's, there's this adventure where there's this something that's very unknown the absence of knowledge causes a problem, and someone has to take the initiative to go on this adventure looking for the clues and solving the mystery. And sometimes these mysteries are solved, contrary to a lot of propaganda about how, you know, the, there's only questions and no answers. No, nope, sometimes 
when people take the initiative, you know, and they have self-confidence and resourcefulness and ingenuity, they look for clues, and they can solve age-old mysteries. So I think yeah, that's a really good way to approach it as a story yeah. because, because I have to admit when I was a little boy and all these out-of-context facts were recited to me, and I was supposed to memorize it, I always, well, I always think, well, what does it have to do with me? You know, what does it have to do with mm-hmm. anything? But when you put it in the context of a story, it becomes very personal, very emotionally engaging, and you, you see how these things apply to you. You know, you know when you examine how life, what life was like before the Industrial Revolution, how it was after, you do see how the principles of physics and, you know, the steam engine apply to you. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, I mean, I don't know where the whole idea that that science is um, divorced from drama and emotion. I mean, the the, the people who have catapulted us, I, I guess I should say, catapulted human knowledge um, were such characters, every single one of them. Um, they had to be to persist with these really seemingly insoluble scientific problems. Um, And usually in the face of a lot of condemnation um, of, you know, someone who's not a character really is probably not going to make a lot of headway in that kind of environment. Um, And, and you have to be really passionate about wanting to know the answer. Um, I, I know a little something about that. I, I always overschedule myself in terms of experiments. There was one week where I did an experiment and, and three really full, like maybe got to eat some crackers for lunch type days. And then the next day I was like, you know what? I really want to know the answer. I'm going to do all of this in one day. I think it was a 13 hour day. <laughs> Again, maybe sustaining myself on crackers, but like I understand that, desperate, just, you know, inexorable need to know that, that kind of passion and to have my profession portrayed as just a bunch of, you know, bland automatons, very foreign to me. Um, and clearly very foreign to the creators of mystery science. I really, really dig it. I mean, it's interesting the parallel that you made between storytelling and science because I completely wholeheartedly agree with that comparison. You know what I mean? Like a story that doesn't appeal to you emotionally doesn't work. And and science that doesn't appeal to me emotionally just ain't going to happen. Fortunately, it does. Um, and it sounds like that's what they're sort of Inspiring in their students at mystery science. So, very, you very know, that, cool. reminds me, that reminds me of a saying. Actually, I don't know how to say it, pronounce Latin words, so I'm going to see it wrong. But there's a thing. What? It's a very Dare to know. Now, don't just know mm-hmm. it. Dare to know it. Mm hmm. You know, you know the Franken- story of Frankenstein is not considered the most flattering towards science, but one part that really is accurate is when 
you watch the movie and Colin Clive, you know, he's so orgasmically excited and he shows, It's alive! It's alive! Part is very accurate. You know, mm-hmm. and he's not describing the monster, he's describing the passion that goes into the search for knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I'm very fascinated by the story of Frankenstein and it, both its literary and scientific aspects. Um, I just reread it recently, actually. It's very interesting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, you, you can sort of just, I mean, in the book, it's less clear. When it's dramatized in film, it's more obvious. And he says, it's alive, right? Like, there's so much compressed into those two words, right? The idea of maybe um, reviving dead um, neuronal tissue to to reverse paralysis or repair damage from a stroke or um, revive um, people who've, who've succumbed to an accident and have died Suddenly, and the, the possibility of of helping so many people and making so many lives better and and saving lives like compressed into two words, or I mean, just the the joy of discovery that Archimedes must have felt just compressed into the word Eureka. You know that mm-hmm. I, I don't have a better way of describing just how breathtaking that feeling is. Um, and yeah, I hope everyone gets to feel that at least once. Um, okay, so I could go on and on, but we've got a couple more topics to canvas, and one of them is art. And I found this clip of Corey talking about art, and it was it's a it's a little lengthy, but I just could not resist. So um, enjoy. I just have a, one thing I wanted to bring up because of the art, and it's. Uh, in particular, this art uh, topic is, um, and I was talking to Meg before the show, and I said, the problem for me, and it's ironic that she brings this up, because I got into this discussion on Facebook with, uh, she's not really a friend, she's more of an acquaintance, and she put a bunch of pictures of this ga- art gallery uh, that she goes to, and she's in Pittsburgh, and she has these really nice pictures, right, of like oil-based uh, paintings, and like, you know, uh, classical really nice uh, looking uh, paintings and sculptures and so forth. Now I'm no art like expert, but you know, those are nice to me. They're pleasing, you know, they're, they're, it takes talent. They're nice. They're pleasing to the eye, you know, so aesthetically very nice. And then a couple of uh, literally like five scrolls into her pictures. The the next thing I see is this modern art 3d generated like ham sandwich, right? That's like in the same gallery. That's in the same gallery as these great classical pictures and stuff and sculptures. And I, had, I couldn't resist. I said, I couldn't resist saying to her, look, uh, the, you, you have some nice, nice uh, uh, classical oil-based paintings and these sculptures are really nice. And they're, I like aesthetically, but this, this modern art stuff, you need to get your money back on some of this shit. You know, <laughs> she got, you know, so you got a, you got a ham sandwich, right? And then, what, she's like, well, it was 3D generated, and it's a picture, and it made me laugh. And I'm like, art shouldn't really, yeah, art could make you laugh, but it shouldn't insult your intelligence, right? Yeah, that that there's a difference between 
watching South Park and laughing and it's, you know, that, cause that's funny and it's, that's art, right? Obviously but it's, you know, but, and, but then being insulted, you know, going to, and paying good money to go see very, you know, classical works of art, right. That take real talent, right. I want to not be able to do what those people, you know, I want to be able to aspire to do that and not be able to do that where I can do, I can uh, take a picture of a ham sandwich and put that on. And if that's what you're going to consider art, then I'm an artist, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, so I want to, you know, art is, you know, what was it? Ayn Rand says art, you know, is, you know, should be, uh, should show man as he is or as he ought to be that, that, that whole. Yeah. That was originally Aristotle. Um, art, good art is shows what can and ought to be. Um, yeah, which I really like. Yeah, so so I was like, well, you know, so that just made me, it kind of made me mad because I'm like, look, th- this is crap. You know, it's insulting to your intelligence. It's insulting to anyone's intelligence when you, you know, think that you can just put a picture of whatever this is and, and then it'll be, you know, you, you can put that in the same category as this Leonardo da Vinci. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, so it just made me a little upset. And then <laughs> when... That that's just it just so happened that that coincided with then you know like the next day or two Meg and I were talking about topics and she said art and I'm like oh great you know I got I have at least one thing to say about it which is <laughs> which is how bad modern art sucks but anyway <laughs> one thing you you purported to say was how bad modern art sucks and I I couldn't agree more. Um, but there are there are some good things happening in art. Um, one of them is I know I again it's another thing to where it's sorry. Hard. I'm sorry, your voice is distorting. When I say that, your, your voice is distorting. It's robot clink in and out, robot like. Oh weird! Something now. Oh, it's still like that. Huh. Um, I haven't done anything differently. That's, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and hope it gets better because I can't like hear it and I'm going to lean on you real hard, Stuart. So better now. Me. Okay, better good. Better now. Good. Stay that way, Lord. your wounds be. Okay. Um, now that I'm addressing this inanimate the object, um, right, so this is um as I've mentioned before on the show, um, at Ocon, there was uh, a two-day class taught by Lisa Van Dam called Falling in Love with Poetry. There was not a dry eye in the house. She brought everyone to tears. Her, her explanation of poetry was so moving and so beautiful. Um, that class is going on tour. Um, as far as I know, it's been confirmed in Seattle. I'm trying to get her to my nearest city, but um, who knows? Um, but yeah, so I've included a link to the Falling in Love with Poetry class and her tour, so please check it out. Um, you can subscribe to get updates, and hopefully you get to, if you if you didn't get a chance to experience it at Ocon, or even if you did, you're definitely going to want to experience it again. Um, so yeah. Hopefully you'll get to experience it in person. It's, it's wonderful. And 
Stuart, I am so sorry you, you couldn't be there for it. It was one of my favorite things about Ocon, other than meeting you in person. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I, I know you're, I mean, you're so artistic and, and you're, you know, you write prose. Are you, do you, are you into poetry at all? Um, well, I, I don't write it. Um, I'm having trouble with the um, meter and the getting the right, correct number of syllables in a line. Things like the that. true of us all. It's frustrating, too, because the grades make it look so stupid easy, you know? I mean, you know, Shakespeare had hundreds of sonnets, and, you know, like, even writing one for me is, is like this battle of attrition. Either it rhymes or it's, the meter is correct, but almost never both. It, at some point, I just give up. I, I mean, that's... It's amazing. Thank goodness there are people who do have a genius for that sort of thing. And thank goodness there are people like Lisa who can um, make us aware of them. Um, I really knew nothing about Alfred, Sir Alfred Tennyson before I discovered Lisa. And she, she was funny in the class. She was talking about how um, her goal in life is to, is to have everyone be acquainted with Victor Hugo and Sir Alfred Tennyson. What were you going to say? Well, I want to ask you, well, first, may I read a quotation from Aristotle? And after that, Please. about the topic, and after you that, never I need go on permission to Aristotle. Okay. okay, so I've actually come across people who said that Ayn Rand was making stuff up when she said Aristotle said art is about what could and ought to be. They said, nope, Aristotle mm-hmm. didn't say that. So I want to present proof right here that Aristotle did say it. Okay, so in the Poetics, Section 1, Part 9, he says, quote, The poet and the historian differ not by writing in verse or in prose. The true difference is that one relates what has happened, the other what may happen. Poetry, therefore, is a more philosophical and a higher thing than history, for poetry tends to express the universal. History, the particular, by the universal, I mean how a person of a certain type on occasion speaks or acts, according to the law of probability or necessity. And it is the universality at which poetry aims in the names she attaches to the personages. Unquote. Okay, Beautiful. So, so, yeah, so a lot of related, so a lot of people, even objectivists, say, why do you get so triggered when someone says my favorite saying, you know, great, good arts copy, great arts steal. You know, the whole implication of that the cliche is that um, originality is overrated. And of course, you know, when when I you know when 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 I write something, originality is actually not my top priority. It, of course, I can't just go copy someone. I can't you know copy someone verbatim, or even just lift, you know, or just lift passages and change just a little, can't do that. But, you know, it's okay to be derivative of the of other artists, it's key to learn from them, but it doesn't follow from that. So that's, originality is actually not my top priority, it's just making what I want. But it doesn't follow from this that originality is unimportant. It is so rare and precious, you know, 
and it should be applauded. And I, I it's so it, it really boggles my mind when someone says, "Well, everything in art is derivative of everything else." So yeah, there is no originality. Everything is a copy. There is no originality. I mean, <laughs> I think just ten seconds of thought should make people encourage. Should make should have make it obvious to people why that's wrong. If there was no innovation in art, we'd only be doing cave paintings. Of course, there's innovation in art. And Diane Durante did a good history book about this, mm-hmm. the history of innovation in sculpture, where she goes, she starts with the ancient Egyptians, she shows what they did, and she goes step by step different developments in the history of sculpture. She points out how, um, at one point, she points out how Greek sculptors noticed that you know a person has to maintain a certain, uh, uh, maintain a center of balance. So if one shoulder is higher than the other, there has to be um, a reciprocal shift in the position of the hips. She points out how when the ancient Greek sculptors first noticed that and first started depicting that, that was innovation. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because. Um, Luke Travers, another alum of the show, um, has um, this online course you can take for art appreciation. It's really amazing. It's called Touching the Art. And he actually, I don't know if this is if he's still doing this, but one of the last um, classes he taught was sort of a, an intro to art history. But from the perspective of, like, how art got better at telling stories. And he, so he started with... Um, ancient Greek pottery and how you see figures that started out very static um, and evolved to be more dynamic and, and were actually doing things. They're depicted as doing things in that it was part of the story. If you turn the, the pot around, you see kind of a story unfurling. Um, and, you know, so it sounds like Diane Durante and, and Luke Trevors are doing sort of a similar thing where they're showing um, innovation in art, um, and yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I never understood that saying, like, you know, good art being copying and or stealing or what. I mean, that, I never understood that. I don't, I don't know what people mean when they say that. And it, um, it breaks my heart when they attribute Steve Jobs. They say Steve Jobs is the one who said that. And what I have to say to that is. I don't care if Steve Jobs said it. It's still wrong. Steve Jobs was correct about many things, but if he said it, he wasn't correct about that. Great also, he thought that his diet Disney. meant that he didn't need to wear deodorant or bathe. So <laughs> I would say that he's not correct about everything. A genius, no question about it. Not trying to, you know, undercut that in any way, but that didn't make him omniscient. Genius and omniscient, not the same thing, in case anyone was wondering. That's right. Great arts originate. And Steve Jobs, of all people, should have known that. Yeah. Well, maybe he was just, I don't know, just having a day and just saying bullshit. I mean, you know, it happens. I get it. Okay. So another really cool thing that's happening in art is that Shar Cushman, another alumna of ITGO, uh, recently came out with a new book. And I know I've plugged her book um Montessori, why it matters for your child's success and happiness. It's amazing. I read a cover to cover. It's, it's, I can't say enough good things about it. So she's come out with a new children's book. 
I started reading it to Gracie, but it's a little advanced for her. You know what I mean? She kind of got, it, it doesn't take much for her to get restless. Um, it's actually quite a feat when you engage her. Um, and, you know, long enough that she's actually sitting down and not like doing somersaults over mommy's prone body. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book is called Your Life Belongs to You. I don't finished it. I apologize for that. Um, it's not fair for me to blame my beautiful two-year-old, um, but you know, um, extenuating circumstances. I'll say that. Oh, can may I ask a domestic question? Anytime. When, when Corey was talking about how um, his friend, his acquaintance, thought that great the great master's art was. You know, in the same category as, you know, as, as uh, frivolous Marn art, was that Gracie crying in the background? Yes, poor girl. You know, um, you know, when he was saying, I thought it was it matched perfectly when he was talking about all that, <laughs> and, I, and I heard the crying. That's exactly how I felt on the inside. <laughs> oh you know, my god! When I was listening to it, I thought the exact same thing. It was like. You have just made a baby cry with your ridiculous statements about art. <laughs> oh, man. That's another thing I love about hearing these old episodes. Just, you know, I I met Corey when Gracie was just, just a few weeks old. There's, there's this lovely picture of him holding this tiny baby looking directly at mommy. It was such a sweet, sweet picture. Um. So not only do I get to hear Corey's voice every time I listen to these old episodes, but I get to fall in love with my baby from the beginning all over again. It's um, it's really special. Um, so before I start sobbing uncontrollably, let's let's move let's move on to another topic. I kind of came to it more from a government political angle, so I just said, well. One of the first notes I took was, hey, first off, you know, the government would look very different. And how? Um, so it was from an episode where we were kind of like envisioning, um, you know, the world we were, we were trying to make, which, you know, in part was sort of the inspiration for this episode. Um, so in the, I mean, I'm, I know it's probably surprising to, for me to talk about future developments um, in politics that I find positive, especially given what we were talking about earlier in this episode, but um, there is at least one, and that is um, Seminar on Ayn Rand's Political Philosophy by Greg Salmieri and Ankur Gatte, who are both just phenomenal philosophers. I mean, I, I'm just so lucky that they teach mere mortals like me classes and for free. Um, so this, I've, I've, again, I've included a link both um, to the Facebook page and to the place where you um, register for the Zoom webinars. There's six of them on October 16th, 18th, 23rd, 25th, 30th, and um, Dia de Muerte, um, November 1st. Um, so I, it's another thing that um, I'm going to be attending. Um, I think we're just going to be attending. So meet us there. Um, I'm really, really excited about it. Um, and that was a really brief 
honestly, I don't follow politics enough to have more to say, either positively or negatively. Um, but that is one one thing that I know Corey was really really passionate about, and I really admired about him. Even when he got riled up about it, he was still passionate enough to to follow the, the politics, good, bad, or indifferent. And I just did not have it in me. So thank goodness he did. What were you gonna say, Stuart? I I envy you. You know, not following <laughs> politics. That's the same choice. But you know, you know. I wonder if there's a scientific way to test this, but I do get the impression that the Academy is much more open to discussing Ayn Rand's ideas than even just 10 years ago. I mean, even mm-hmm. just 10 years ago, you mentioned, you, you go up to a philosophy professor and mention Ayn Rand, and they just look down their nose at you, literally. They just turn up their noses and go, Ugh! Ugh! that's the noise they make. You know? <laughs> and to a large extent, they still do that. But nowadays, there is more openness to discussing the ideas. You see, come out, you see these academic presses publishing books by Greg Salmieri, you know, about Ayn Rand, you know, these academic publishers publishing these books, you know, books by Tara Smith. And I think this is looked upon now. And even even the derogatory um, papers by Ayn Rand, about Ayn Rand by philosophy professors, I think it's an improvement. Like, there's this really derogatory one by a colleague of Greg Salmieri's called, uh, you, know, you know, Ayn Rand really is a philosopher, just not a good one. <laughs> and Bear, then Bear replied to it, you know, and uh, the the derogatory paper said, uh, you know, lots of, of philosophy professors do, even, don't even want to admit Ayn Rand was a philosopher. And that's not my position at all. I, I totally despise her. But you have to admit she does fit the criteria of what makes a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And that's not just having academic papers published. You know, and of course, I didn't appreciate the condescension, but that really is an improvement. And I do think mm-hmm. that you know, there is more openness to discussing these ideas. But I wonder if there's a scientific way to, you know, measure that, you know, 10 years ago versus now. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's really encouraging to hear and, and, yeah, again, I I haven't done a comprehensive survey, but it does seem like while she's mostly treated pretty, you know, she's she's often maligned. She is still talked about, and um, it's it's hard. I mean, speaking purely anecdotally, it sounds like she's being discussed more and more. Which, yeah, I agree with you. That in itself is encouraging. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up, but, um, you're so kind to, to join me and, um, do this for, I mean, for Corey and for his family. And I, I wanted to give you the opportunity. I mean, you said some, you wrote some really lovely things, um, about Corey on your blog. So I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I did want to give you the opportunity if there's anything you wanted to say on air that I didn't give you a, a chance to say I, I wanted to I wanted to give it to you now is, is there anything else you wanted to, to add before oh, yeah. I wrap up yeah I'm very grateful to Corey you know he he started this podcast with you and Megan and, and it, was, it was great to hear this lively discussion about ideas and you know and a lot you know and a lot, it's so easy for us objectivists to get focused on the negative and about how, well, just about how things were wrong with the world. And Corey 
had a very positive way of looking at it. He looked at progress. Mm-hmm. He wanted to, you know, have good humor and good discussions, you know, and talk about how these relate to, you know, your life very personally. You know, these abstract ideas pertain to, you know, your life very personally. And he really brought that out. And, you know, and, and he, I, I really, you know, he really, he was very energetic. He had, he really wanted to hear, it, what, you know, I mean, it's easy for me to think, oh, you know, no one cares what I think. But, you know, he really did care what I thought. He wanted to listen. And often he had more confidence in what I had to say than I did. And I'm really going to miss him. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And, um, yeah, that was really, thank you for saying that. Yeah. And yeah, I, I completely agree with, with everything you said. Um, okay. So, um, uh, wow. (laughs) Um, so, you know, everything we've been talking about with regard to positive developments in the culture, it's, it's by no means an exhaustive list. If you want more links besides what's at blog talk and what will be in the Facebook group in the closet objectivist, um, there are links to podcasts, fiction, nonfiction articles, um, other ways you can edify yourself and promote objectivism in the culture for free. If you want to do all of that, check out Stephen Macklin's website, objectivism365.com it's fantastic and there's a blog too if you want to make suggestions I'm sure there's things I've neglected and not on purpose or out of malice or anything like that it's just like I um, just I'm just busy <laughs> I just can't keep up with all of it which is itself I think a positive a positive sign um, so I I bring all these positive developments um, because one thing you, you, the listener will not have in the future is more episodes of in the closet objectivist. Um, I've had some encouragement to continue the podcast in Corey's absence. And I, and I really appreciate that encouragement, but um, I honestly, I only ever did the podcast to have an excuse to catch up with Corey and, and so that we could bounce ideas off of each other. Um, doing the podcast alone has been, I mean, this is not a shock to anybody. It's been really hard. And the only thing that really got me through each of those episodes was the hopes that Corey would hear them and, and know that we were thinking about him. And I, and um, I actually just got a text from his wife tonight um, saying that he, he did hear at least a couple of them, which was just, I'm so grateful to her and, and I hope they made him smile. Um, now that I know he won't hear it, I just can't, I can't really bring myself to continue this. Um, but I, I did, I wanted to thank you, Stuart. Um, you were such a, you were just such a delightful addition. I mean, I don't think the closet was really complete until you came in. Um, and I wanted to thank all of our listeners. I mean, everyone's been so, so kind and supportive in a way that just like astonished me. 
um, and still does. And it's meant, it's meant so much to me. I know it's meant a lot to Corey. Um, and I, um, I, I want to thank you, but more importantly, you know, you should hear the, the more important thank you. <laughs> thank you again to the people that do listen to us. Yeah. I love that clip. Um, so I wanted to, um, wow, this is, um, this is really emotional. Um, I, I wanted to close out with one of my favorite clips from Corey. Um, and then I've got some outro music. It's another song from Back to the Future, and it's one of mine and Grace's favorites. I mean, I, I should have recorded her singing the, the chorus because it's so cute. She loves this song. Um, and it's from Back to the Future, one of Ico's favorite movies. Um, Stuart, I know all three of us have talked about how amazing this movie is. Um, I know it's it's pretty similar to last week's outro, but given that this is the final episode of Ico, um, and it is an eager look to the future, I thought it was I thought it was perfect. Um, part of the reason I and I think Corey and and Stuart, you'll have to chime in, love Back to the Future is that future is I mean unlike a lot of movies, the future is I mean it doesn't romanticize the past and demonize the future as dystopian. Rather, Back to the Future takes a very up benevolent view of the past, but the future is treated as something exciting, something to be sought and discovered. And that's really what I wish for um, for myself and for all of you. I, Stuart, I'm totally walking all over you here. Um, is it fair to say that's one of the reasons you love Back to the Future? Oh yeah, and you know, you know, so yeah, it is really sad that in the closet of objectives is ending, but I think it just wouldn't be the same without Corey. But you know, I, yeah. I want to say, you know, that's not the end of the adventure for you, and you know, Corey would Corey would really want you to continue enjoying life, make every choice, every second count. It matters a lot. Your life belongs to you. And it's very important. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't let anyone say you're just a blip, just a blip in the universe. No. You are <laughs> at the center of the universe. And what happens to you matters. Your happiness matters. What you choose to do matters. And, and yeah. I think, you know, Back to the Future, it really is about that. Mm-hmm. You, know, it's like, you know, Robert Zemeckis, I don't like all of his movies. Like Forrest Gump, in some ways, to me, is thematically the opposite of Back to the Future because, you know, Forrest is it's too passive for me. Just things just happen to him. You know, he's that feather in the wind at the end. And Robert Zemeckis mm-hmm. made Tales from the Crypt. You know, and I know it's supposed to be funny, but even if you, you take his tongue in cheek, I, I don't like that kind of humor. You know, it, it's just to me, it's just too gory for me. I mean, I like monsters, but I don't. But I love Back to the Future. And, you know, it's so much about how choice matters. You know, things, you know, it's not, like, it's not as if things are destined to play out a certain way. You know, George McFly made some poor choices in high school, but it, he wasn't destined to make them. You know, mm-hmm. and those things can change. You can go back. I mean, you can't go back in time, but there are moments in your life where you can think, wow, this is really a pivotal moment for me. What am I going to do? This is my moment of truth. You know, and that's George McFly when he chooses to do things differently and stand up to Biff. 
And I, I want to read um, what Doc Brown says in Back to the Future Part 2. Okay, so, uh, so Jennifer says to him, Dr. Brown, I brought this note back from the future. Now, now it's erased. And Doc says, of course it's erased. And Jennifer says, but what does that mean? And Doc says, it means your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is wherever you make it. So make it a good one. And that has always stuck with me. Oh, I love that. I was actually watching Back to the Future in preparation for this episode <laughs> before you called. Was, um, yeah, I, I can't love that movie enough. And I, I'm so glad, glad that you that you brought up that quotation. That was perfect. Okay, um, I guess with that, I'll sign off and let, let Corey have the last word. Um, thank you again so much, Stuart. I'm so grateful to you. Um, and thank Thank you to all the listeners. Um, and thank you. And thank you, Corey. Um, all right. Cheers. Cheers to reason. In the novel Atlas Shrugged, one of the characters proclaimed, I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for mine. <laughs> Go, go!